0: Today's scripture reading is from James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Let me pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, the courage and the insight this morning to let your word scrutinize our hearts, that we would welcome that from your Holy Spirit. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is, man, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be standing here uh, in this place. Thank you. Uh, so much for welcoming me and my family. Um, did you Did you hear the passage that I got assigned for my first Sunday here? <laughs> it's a text with teeth, isn't it? A number of weeks ago, when Scott asked me if I would preach sight unseen, I said, "Of course," because I love Scott and I love our church, and I love to preach. And then I read the passage and I I just, I had to laugh because my first sermon as part of the pastoral team is a rebuke. Really? (laughs) Really? But the truth is, I love passages like this for a couple of reasons. One is these passages do remind us that Scripture has teeth. The Bible is not a book that's just full of hollow, warm platitudes and inspirational sayings. It's a book that fights for our hearts on every page. It fights for us, which we're going to see in these verses as we unpack them. Another thing I like about texts like this is they raise a vital question one that we have to wrestle with every day of our lives. And the question is this, are we people who welcome scrutiny? Are we people who welcome scrutiny? Because here's the thing, we can't escape it. You're going to go through every day of your life facing some kind of scrutiny, some kind of scrutiny that we respond to. It comes in all kinds of forms, comparison, failure, Advantages that other people have that we wish were ours? Do we welcome the scrutiny of Scripture? It's a big question, really, we're asking because the question is basically this Who gets to speak into my most precious loves? Who gets to speak into my most precious loves? So since we're just getting to know each other, let me tell you exactly where I'm going this morning with the structure of this sermon so that we'll be on the same page together. Uh, this message basically comes in two parts, two halves, if you will. The first is asking the scrutiny question, how do we receive a passage of Scripture like this? So that's the first half. It's just wrestling with that question. How do we receive a passage of Scripture like this? And then second, we're going to unpack what the passage is saying and apply it to our lives. So how do we receive a passage like this? We live in a world of laws. There are lots of laws, and some of them make perfect sense. You hear it, and you think, obviously. You shall not murder, cross at the crosswalk don't steal things. We hear these laws and they make sense to us, but not every law in the books makes sense. For example, in Wyoming, it is illegal to take a photograph of a rabbit during the month of June. I don't know why, but it's on the books. In North Carolina, no bingo game shall last longer than five hours. So plan your four-and-a-half-hour bingo game to your heart's content, but you cross that five-hour mark and you are violating the law. In Maine, Maine only, not Tennessee, in Maine, you will be cited if you leave your Christmas decorations up after January 14th. Does that make anybody nervous? In London, it is not only bad form, but it is illegal to die in one of the Houses of Parliament. One more, okay, this is my favorite. In Alaska, it is against the law to awaken a bear in order to take its photograph. (laughs) I love that one. Laws like these, they seem arbitrary, but… But we know that they exist because something happened, right? Something happened somewhere that made the legislators of the age shake their heads and say, come now, you people. Now we're going to have to make a law about this, right? Growing up, I was a pool rat, and I lived under the oppression of one such law. I spent most days of my hot Indiana summers going to the city pool. I had a season pass and I was there every day. Never once, never once did I apply a drop of sunscreen. You wanna know why? Because it was the 80s, and that's how we rolled in the 80s. But they had this rule, and the rule was that every hour, the lifeguards would blow their whistles and we'd have to climb out of the pool for 10 minutes and rest. And I hated that rule, because it made no sense, and I was, operating with the value system that if something didn't make sense to me, then it must not make sense at all, right? Which I'm not the only person in the room who has done that. But if you dig a little deeper, I know why I didn't like this rule. Why? It's for the same reason that Dr. Paul Lim can't drive 35 miles an hour. If you were here a few weeks ago, he preached and talked about getting a speeding ticket for going 38 and a 35, and he explained what I felt, and that is that we don't like to be told what to do. We, we just don't like to be told what to do. But the truth is, that 10-minute rule, it wasn't an arbitrary rule. It was in place because the pool management and I'm sure insurers understood that creatures like me… Teenage kids are creatures that come with limits. And in a pool, it's dangerous to push those limits. The Bible is full of law. It's full of instruction. It's full of rebuke, like we just read. And it presents itself as an authoritative voice. Come now, people, listen. Come now, listen. I don't know what your view of the Bible is. I don't presume to know what every view of the Bible is in this room or what authoritative voices you heed. I don't don't know that. What I do know is that all of us heed some authoritative voice. We all do. It's inescapable. Some code or some law that we live by, even if the authoritative voice is just our own, we all live according to some code or rule. And at CPC, we believe that the Bible is... A God given, reliable guide for life and faith, an authoritative one. And I want to give you one big reason why. There are many, but here's one it's because none of the laws in Scripture, none of them, are arbitrary. None of the instruction in Scripture is arbitrary, it's all relational all of it. It's all about how we relate to God. It's all about how we relate to other people. If there's fight in God's Word, as there is in today's passage, it's because God is fighting for our hearts with His Word. And the book of James is a fight for our hearts. We've seen it by way of John, James' strong language. I mean, so far in this sermon series on the ethics of grace, James has called his readers things that would have made them say, ow, ouch, James. I mean, he called them, last week, adulterous people. He's called them foolish. He's called them hypocritical. Today, he uses a word for people who live in a city and a time not unlike ours. He says, you you rich people. And it's got a barb in it. I mean, it's, it's not intent, it's, it, it's not super warm when he says, come now, you rich people. He's using the term with strength. And here's what we have to understand. By any historical standard, all of us in this room are rich people. By any historical standard, by right of being able to turn on a tap and have drinkable water come out, by being able to walk into a grocery store. By having mechanized travel, we are an incredibly wealthy generation historically. And one of the key indicators of wealth is that we have options. That's, a, that's an indicator of wealth, is that we have options. We're able to choose this or that. We can say, when I grow up, I want to be this instead of that. When many people historically would be what their parents were because that's what you were born into and that was the limits of your realm, of your world. And so as James describes the sort of rich people he's writing to, we share something in common with them, and that is that we all have, to a degree, the ability to use Resources to shape the directions of our lives. All of us do. So what does James teach in this passage? What is he saying? Let's listen to what the passage has to teach. It's ethic of grace. In the verses before this, James just finished addressing business owners. But here he's speaking to landowners. People who controlled regions of the area of Galilee And to control land is to hold power, and in this case, these landowners have been corrupted by this power, and so this text is about a social social justice issue. And James is denouncing these wealthy landlords for three things, for accumulating wealth, for defrauding their workers, and for allowing their self-indulgence to lead to actions or negligence that have actually resulted in the deaths of innocent people. So the accumulation of wealth, the defrauding of workers, and self-indulgence that leads to the death of innocent people through negligence. Concerning the accumulation of wealth, James says this, he says, you've… your riches have rotted the things that you robe yourselves in to indicate your wealth. You've placed your treasure here. But the things that you thought would last forever, don't you see they're burning down around you? Though the situation James has in view is specific to his time and place, he highlights a problem that is universally applicable. Because James is talking to people who accumulate wealth in such a way, this is where we we relate, People who accumulate wealth in such a way that they, one, lose sight of how temporary all of this is. Two, we lose sight of how it all belongs to God in the first place. And three, we lose sight of how God sees what's really going on in our hearts, And so there's a special sort of blindness that James is addressing here, one that I know I suffer from, and it is the inability to see beyond what I think I must have in order to be secure. So have you ever asked this question, what do I feel I must have? What do I feel I must have in order to be secure? Everybody in this room, we have an answer to that question. It may take us a minute to find it, but we all have an answer to the question of what we feel we must have in order to be secure. And there's a blindness that comes with that, and that blindness has a fallout, and the fallout is an inability to see or care about the needs of other people around us to whom we owe a debt of love and dignity and respect. So there's this accumulation of wealth that blinds Second, he denounces defrauding workers. I love the ground-level applicability of this. Basic agreements between employers and employees have been ignored, and workers have not been paid, and there have been results, consequences of this. What are the consequences? It's not hard to imagine, is it, if you've ever had wages withheld from you. Trouble, anxiety, sleepless nights, a stronger sense of temptation to indulge in addictive behavior, loss, the distance that happens between a husband and wife when you're working as hard as you can to make ends meet and you can't. All these things are in play. They have to be, right? Because wages are being withheld. Now, lest we get too spiritual and too metaphorical too quickly, let's pause and make sure that we understand that this is a literal situation James is addressing. And as such, has applicability, I'm sure, to some of us in this room. If you're someone who is in a position to withhold a wage from somebody if you're somebody who has withheld a wage from somebody, if you're someone who is in the process right now of withholding a wage from somebody and that wage is due to them, Scripture scrutinizes you. Here is a rebuke in the Bible (laughs) for that situation. James says to those who defraud, this is the way he puts it, he says you've fattened yourself Through self-indulgence, you've cheated your workers to support your own lavish lifestyle, unaware that you're going to be judged by the owner of the universe. So he speaks into that to scrutinize the heart of those who defraud others what they're due. And then there's this issue of the death of innocent people. That this blindness of accumulating wealth and defrauding workers and really just not caring about the well-being of those who report to you has resulted in people dying through negligence, through accidents. In James' context, the landowner's negligence has caused people to die. And he says, God hears them. God hears their cry. And this is an image of blood crying out from the grave. Have you, you've heard this image, right? This blood cries out from the grave. That's what this is an image of. Have you ever wondered how that works, how blood cries out from the grave, how the voice of innocence cries out from the grave. At CPC here, recently, we had a very poignant example of this very thing happen in this room. In fact, right over here on the stage, about eight feet from where I'm standing. It was during the racial realities forum. and a man sat here in a Native American headdress. His name's Charles Robinson. He's a member of the Choctaw Nation. And he talked about 19th century American Indian boarding schools, which would forcefully remove Native American children from their homes and immerse them in European culture and education with the expressed goal to, quote, kill the Indian but save the man. And if you were here for that, Some of you are here for that, right? If you were here for that, you saw what I saw. You saw how Charles could not get through that statement without weeping, 150 years later. And I wept too, and the reason I wept was because hearing him say that reminded me of how a number of years ago, our family had the honor of hosting a man named Wendell Hannigan, who's an elder in the Yakima Nation, in our home. And while he was staying with us, he told us about these boarding schools. And he also told us through his tears. And so now I stand here on April 24, 2016, and I tell you again, and I'm fighting back tears of my own. And I ask you, what's happening right now? What's happening here? An injustice was committed against a people group victimizing their children by trying to strip them of their cultural heritage for the purpose of controlling land, not that different from what James is talking about. And that injustice has reached our ears today here in this room. All these years later. What's my point? The point is this, injustices committed against the innocent don't just go away. They don't. They don't just go away. And the reason they don't is actually beautiful. It's because whether we admit it or not, we're connected. As human beings, we're connected. And one of the bonds that we share is a broken condition. And so Charles weeps for generations of children that suffered that he never met. And we feel the pain too. They're crying out all this, James is saying to us, come now, wealthy people, don't use your power to contribute to that brokenness. Don't use your power to contribute to that brokenness for the sake of your own love of wealth. That's what he's saying. Come now, rich people. Listen, let me explain what's happening here. As we hear this, we need to remember this book is not a diatribe against people who disgust James. That's not why he's writing this letter every chapter every paragraph doesn't start with and another thing or you people you know he's writing to people who are dear to him and we know this because if you look at the beginning of almost every subject heading in the letter it's my brothers my dear brothers is how he addresses he's not sniping from behind some ivory tower of self-righteousness these words are deeply relational he's fighting for people's hearts god's word is fighting for people's hearts He sees something that profoundly concerns him, and so he fights. And it's not a small fight. This passage and the subject go to one of the deepest areas of idolatry that we know, the love of wealth, the love of money, which really is just a way to get at autonomy from God based on the glorification of self by way of the destruction of others. Autonomy from God based on the glorification of self by way of the destruction of others. This is the power and the danger of wealth, is that we lose the ability to see anything that's not just us. Or we insist on only seeing other people through our own lens. It's our world and everybody else is just living in it. Christ himself says that the love of wealth is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of wealth being the roots of all kind of evil is taught in Scripture, but it's not an idea that is unique to Scripture. It's not some weird take that the Bible has on wealth that the rest of the world looks at and says, I guess, I don't know, that doesn't really make sense to me, right? I mean, this is something that we understand is... A reality. It's a culturally evident truth anywhere you look. In every walk of life, around the globe, down through time, the love of wealth has produced incredible misery, pain, and death. And I'll give you a personal example of that in my own life a way, a very tangible, real way, that the love of wealth has produced evil in me this week against you, actually. See if you don't have an example in your own life like this, so I'm not just standing up here naked and alone. As I prepared this sermon, this passage fought with my heart, and I felt a stab, and it was a stab of reluctance. It was a stab of reluctance the first time I read it through. I thought, I really thought this, Lord, really, this is what you would have me preach my first Sunday on the team at Christ Pres. this? Thank you for laughing, because it is kind of funny. But it made me stop and ask, okay, now wait, what's going on inside of me right now? Why do I fear preaching this passage? I'm only the messenger, I didn't write it. But why isn't my first desire to throw my arms around what the Lord has for us this morning. Why wasn't that my first reaction? I'll tell you why. I love wealth. I love the wealth of being liked. It's a currency for me. It's a currency that I want to accumulate to the point that I felt a reluctance to teach God's Word for fear of losing your affection. Lord have mercy I confess that to you and I repent if like me you have it in you to sacrifice relationships on the altar of the love of wealth please listen let these words from James inspired by the Holy Spirit scrutinize your heart hold up a mirror Trusting that the one who searches is fighting not against you, but for you, because he loves you. Listen, James is fighting a real fight with real people, in a real context, with real injustices in this passage. But the reasons for the fight are all around us. What James is fighting for here is he saying, look, don't cling to the things of this world. They're burning down around you. You're not a citizen here first. Believers in Jesus are citizens of another kingdom. And the love of wealth and the need to make our own place in this world leads us to do some drastic things that end up devaluing other people Harming ourselves and forgetting Christ, all in the name of trying to obtain something that we just cannot hold. And so when James gives hard words to people prone to be governed by the love of wealth, which is all of us, this is an incredibly gracious, important gift and help. May the Lord use His words always, always, always to fight for our hearts, and may we welcome that scrutiny. Pray with me.